hi and welcome to the All Plane Podcast where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast as well as many other aviation stories are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv, A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E.tv. Today we welcome to the podcast Omer Barrio Hi. Omer has been a leading force in the aviation innovation space for quite some time. In 2015, he co-founded Aviation, an electric aircraft startup that we had here on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Omer left the aviation CEO role last year and then became president of Autoflight, a truly interesting eVTOL project. Autoflight stands out in the very competitive eVTOL space because of a couple of things. First, its global nature, with founders and production facilities in China, research, design and investors in Germany, and operations and testing in the US. Also, despite maybe appearing less often than some of its peers in the media and the headlines, Autoflight has been hitting some pretty impressive milestones. For example, it recently set a new distance record by flying 250 kilometers on a single battery charge and just a few days ago announced a really large order from a company called EVFly. But more generally, I was also looking forward to speaking with Omer in order to get his insights about the eVTOL landscape and how he sees the technical and commercial perspectives for this new segment of the aviation industry. So, without further ado, let me welcome Omer to the podcast. Hello, Omer. How are you? I am good. Thanks for having me today. First of all, let me just tell the audience a few things about you, and maybe you can then complete the, giving us your, <laughs> your own perspective. Um, you've been an entrepreneur in uh, advanced air mobility and in new propulsion technologies for quite a while. I remember we spoke a few years ago when I was preparing an article about new a new generation of light aircraft that was taking shape, and you were back then at Aviation. Right now you are leading a, a different project, which is called Out of Flight, and it's an eVTOL. Uh, we're going to just uh, talk about it in more detail now. But... Tell us a bit more about yourself, about your background and, and the background of this project. Uh, thanks, Mikhail. And, and yes, it, it was a, I, I would say it's a, it's a fun couple of years, almost a decade now. Um, I think we're in a very interesting time in the aviation industry in general. And in a way, the electrification of many things in our, in our uh, world, in our lives has uh, been crawling towards the aviation industry for quite some time. And I've been fortunate enough through founding aviation aircraft to be, you know, some people will say front and center, I would say <laughs> side and in the trenches. But yeah, I've been in these trenches for quite a while. Um, but it's, it's as I said before, it's a very exciting time. I'm a physicist by training. I love airplanes and electrical systems. And if someone was to tell me about uh, 10 or, or 15 years ago when I was still either studying or doing my uh, my early days work as either as a physicist or in the auto industry, that one day the aerospace design space is going to be so diverse and will have so many exciting opportunities, I would have been very skeptical. I'm a very skeptical person um, by nature. And I think through my journey with aviation aircraft and through the really phenomenal work that was done there by the team and building that, you know, the Alice, the, the world's largest commuter aircraft that's all electric. I've learned 
a couple of truths, and some of them have to do with the required level of skepticism needed to really push these projects forward. But some of them also have to do with the fact that there are really hordes of, of amazing engineers and hardworking people trying to reinvent some of our um, modes of transport and to make them more accessible. And that's an exciting time to be. So um, I, I feel very fortunate. I'm a big skeptic of EV tolls in general. I think a lot of people managed to mention this over the years, and I still am. But I think, you know, if you're a skeptic, get your hands dirty, get to work. So I'm trying to push Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed, there are two schools of thought here. There are some people that are absolutely enthusiastic about the possibilities of EV tolls. We've got also some people on the podcast that are a lot more skeptical about the, the whole concept. But you're working now on an EV toll. So I guess you can tell us a few things about what's going on and about the perspectives that you, you see for this new category of air mobility that is just now emerging uh, so after aviation, you move on to Autoflight, which is an EVTOL developer. What can you tell us about this company? I've read that you've uh, raised $100 million of funding. Is that right? For, to um, develop so an EV Autoflight actually raised... So Autoflight is a private company, so we're not talking about every aspect of the details of uh, funding um, uh, openly, but Autoflight raised well north of 100 million. The, the last investment round was uh, at the scale of 100 million and, and was led by uh, Team Global. I think that uh, that was made public. But I think there are several things that are extremely interesting about Autoflight and about where the space is heading in terms of uh, kind of, I would say, global diversity and in terms of building the kind of configurations that will make economic sense. And that goes back to the beginning of your question, or, or rather your comment about two schools of thought here, right? So people who are very skeptical compared to people who are very excited. I would think, at least to me, these are not mutually exclusive. You can be very skeptical, but still very excited. Um, and I think that's that's kind of a healthy place to be in because you want to build things that actually work. And when I'm looking at the EV toll market, I was, um, I don't know if, if famously, but I was quoted as to saying, hey, you, you cannot sell a crippled R44 for more than $4 million. And obviously referencing the Robinson um, helicopter. And th that's actually true. That was part of uh, one of my speeches in a, in a conference about EV tolls. And I still believe that. I think we're looking at a very, very unique niche that could grow to change the way we travel, but it needs a lot of things to happen to get there. And what I found is that you probably want to have the benefits of the electric, electric propulsion, the benefits of the E in EV toll, really at their peak without the hurdles of significant uh, reduced performance and, and most importantly, at a reasonable price point. And, and I'll explain the concept and how does this uh, relate to autoflight. So let's say you want to fly a mission over traffic in an urban area. So you want that mission to be um, fairly short because that's that's the that's the operating concept, right? You fly from uh, the center of Manhattan to JFK or yeah. to Newark or something mm -hmm. like that, which is uh, you know a few dozens of miles. It's not hundreds of miles, and it takes several minutes, let's say under half an hour. Electric planes can do this, but so do helicopters. So why don't they? 
And the real answer is that helicopters that are cheap enough are not safe enough. And all helicopters are way too loud to do this. That's more, more or less the kind of core of the hurdle. Why are they not safe? So if you look at a single engine helicopter and the power to weight um, margins that it have, and you want to operate it very aggressively over a very densely populated area, if you do the math of what does 10 to the minus seven or 10 to the minus eight safety record mean over what is presumably an area that has hundreds of thousands of flights per year and maybe even more than that, um, you're going to have one or two crashes a year. That's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And the question is, okay, how does that translate to a safer means of transport? Because you know our standards for aviation, especially commercial aviation, are extremely high in safety. Well, they translate to redundant systems, more power, the ability to uh, operate in every uh, or in in let's say very what we would consider very reasonable weather conditions uh, in a city that are challenging for precise and very safe helicopter operations. That's that's kind of a Venn diagram that doesn't have a lot of um, areas that that coincide. And then the question is, can EV tolls fix it? And the answer is yes, but. And the but is around redundancy, safety, power, and sound. Mm -hmm. And when you fix all of that, if you've had a configuration, I think some of the actors out there today have very, very capable configurations that could actually present a challenge to the reason why we don't see widespread helicopter operation today, meaning they build very safe platforms with a lot of redundancy, with enough power and enough time in the air to operate safely, not just to you know have a one flight done safely, but to have the whole operation uh, be constructed safely. And then the question is, is it affordable? Yeah. And I was about to ask, uh, there's also the cost I mentioned here, and helicopters are notoriously expensive. Correct. So, you know, so we all know the jokes about helicopters. You know, it's not an airplane. It's a, a group of airplane parts flying in formation. They don't really fly. They get rejected by the earth. The victory of uh, a triumph of engineering over common sense. Yeah. So helicopters are complex machines. And um, again, to make them safe, they have to be even more complex. And that makes them extremely expensive to operate and maintain. Um, yes, electric propulsion does solve that. And the question is, can we create a system that is both safe, reasonably priced, and cheap to operate so that it does compete with ground transportation safely enough and quietly enough? And I think, again, the place that makes this competitive, that really is the silver bullet for that industry, has to do with redundancy, simplicity, and supply chain. And that's more or less where, for me, Autoflight was interesting. I've been following Autoflight for years. I've known the founder. I've known most of the um, major investors and specifically uh, the team global lead, uh, Lukasz Godowski and, and TNU, the founder, are, are kind of the, the two figures that I've uh, been in touch with way before um, I got involved. And one of the things that were interesting for me was building on existing manufacturing capacity that's deeply embedded in the um, Eastern China supply chain on both the battery front, the motor front, and the composite front. May I interrupt you here for a second? Because Autoflight is a really global uh, company. You have roots in China, 
you have a, an important presence in Europe, in, in Germany in particular, and you have your testing grounds in the US, I think in, in California, right? Correct. So, so yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's a, fair, a fair comment, but that's really the point of the whole thing. So the way I look at it, and that was one of the things that I've personally pushed for in terms of the structure of the company, um, was that this needs to be built from the ground up mm -hmm. as a design organization that's embedded and based and today even is connected to the headquarters of the company in Germany with you know clear line of sight to YASA certification and to how airplanes should be designed for, for safe operations, significant engineering and manufacturing capacity in China so that some of the parts, some of the, system, the subsystems could be built at scale with, um, I would say, both a favorable cost structure, but also a favorable, let's say, favorable access to a stable basis of a supply chain that comes from the auto industry. Yeah. And then, of course, you need a foot in the largest market on earth, which is the US. So, so that combination is really, I believe, one of the uh, unique selling propositions of, of Autoflight. And that's how it's built. So the headquarters is in Germany. The design organization is in Germany and, and is uh, in the process of being approved by YASA. The design of the aircraft is a joint effort between the German team that's doing the preliminary design and, and the, um, and the, and the um, let's say, detailed design uh, to an extent. And then the design for manufacturing done by the Chinese group um, then goes to manufacturing with a few components that are built specifically in each territory. So we will have, for example, final assembly uh, facilities in Germany, and I believe longer term in the US as well, not only because of the geopolitical complexities of working with China and some aspects that are hard to uh, develop jointly, specifically uh, software and fly-by-wire um, systems, but also, and I would say strategically mostly, because of the differences in the certification paradigm between Europe, the US, and China. Okay. In a way, each right now has its own strategy, and it's unclear who's going to win. So you want to have the capability to have different flavors for the product uh, as you go to market. And, and I think this is really the heart of what could make the eVTOL industry, I would say, competitive. Okay, that's interesting. Products in in you know in line for Europe, for the US, and for China. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, here at the podcast we've been talking with many entrepreneurs in the West, but China has also a very vibrant eVTOL scene that is a bit maybe a bit self-contained. So it's uh, it, it it's active in in China itself, but maybe not as well known outside China. And the companies like Ehang and Voland yeah. and others. So uh, yeah, well, I think the thing that you you are in China, but also you are uh, approaching the rest of the of the global markets. Correct. So I, I think a solely Chinese effort would be extremely difficult. Uh, I think creating, you know, building an EVTOL is already very difficult. Uh, certifying it seems like a, you know climbing the Everest at best, and doing this while being the only aircraft designed and built in China and then sold in the West is probably impossible. The, the reason, by the way, is embedded in the approach 
in my mind, that the Chinese authorities are taking to certification and in the absence of a general aviation market in China. So there are interesting opportunities um, in Chinese manufacturing, but I find the the channels or, or the paths that regulators are taking right now for eVTOL operations and certification not to converge. So leaning on what China is um, in terms of certification go-to-market of this eVTOL um, kind of emergence there and using that for the West, I think is not feasible, mostly because the approaches are very different and the way this will operate is very different. Again, the airspace is unchallenged. There are no Piper Cubs flying with no electrical system that you need to think about, uh, which is a mixed blessing because on the one hand, it's easier. On the other hand, if it's so easy, you don't get the benefits for trying to operate in the European or American or, or global nest. That, that's my take. And I think it is not extremely difficult at this stage because it's still kind of a bit nebulent. It's not completely clear what each regulator uh, is going to demand. It's not very difficult at this stage to pick one to slightly overshoot some of the requirements and to, let's say, have a a very calculated um, hope that this will cover most, if not all, of the requirements of both YASA, the US, the FAA, of course, and and CAAC in, in China. Now, the aircraft, because we have been talking about all this process, the structure of right. the company, but we haven't talked actually much about the aircraft itself. What can you tell us about the eVTOL that you are designing? What are the features? What's the performance? I read that, for example, you recently broke a record for the longest battery power flight. I think you did 250 kilometers or miles. Yeah, 250.3, just over um, kilometers. And it was super exciting um, in the sense that it was a record uh, broken. I I believe that we're going to see a lot of those broken repeatedly in the next couple of of years. I think it was... um, Exciting for several reasons, and I'll get to that in a second, but uh, let's talk Prosperity One for, for a second. So Prosperity One, which is our um, uh, manned prototype or passenger aircraft uh, going forward, and uh, it will have a cargo variant, but that's kind of the, the core of it. That's kind of the eVTOL people are looking at, um, is a lift and cruise configuration aircraft, all battery powered, of course. We have uh, 10 lift rotors and a wing, and also two push rotors, so 12 motors altogether, um, flying at speeds of around 200 kilometers an hour, and uh, range, as was demonstrated, of uh, just over 250 kilometers, um, probably can do a bit more, but you want to keep some of that reserve in the um, in the battery to be able to safely maneuver and land. The, the purpose of the flight test for that endurance record was obviously to to reach that milestone and to open the envelope and to show that we can uh, fly as far also to ourselves. But I think what's important to understand is that those battery-powered um, EV tolls carrying um, around three passengers, three to four passengers, depending on size. Again, we're sized to carry a, a pilot plus three, a two, roughly two metric ton of maximum takeoff weight. They can be built to fly a significant mission if they have a wing. So if you build a lift and cruise configuration, you can fly this far. Uh, can you explain what's a lift and cruise configuration? For yeah, lift other? and cruise, meaning there is a separation between the lift system, a bunch of propellers that lift the plane up like a big drone, 
and the uh, cruise system that is basically a fixed wing aircraft that pushes or or tracks uh, or tractors uh, the airplane and then flies it while generating lift uh, from a wing. And how is that transition achieved? Is it the same so, engines or, or you use different sets of engines for each phase of the flight? So that, that's, that's the point. You lift with, um, well, mostly with the, uh, with the lift rotors and just using the pushers for stabilization. And then you start pushing while still spinning the lift rotors, uh, creating forward um, speed. And with this forward speed, gradually the lift transitions from being created by the rotors to being created by the wing until you get to a speed that's high enough uh, to allow the plane to be supported by the lift generated by the wing alone. And then you stop and lock in place those lift rotors. Uh, and then when you transition back, you do the opposite um, thing. You, you slow down on the wing to the safest point. You can still control the aircraft, start the propellers, and gradually move the lift from the wing to the propellers until you, you come to, well, basically zero speed in vertical, uh, in, in the, uh, sorry, in the horizontal axis, zero forward speed. And you can maneuver again like a drone or like a helicopter. This is the idea of transition. The, the benefits of it as compared to other uh, players is that there is no changing geometries. You don't need to have anything tilt or move or no heavy and complex um, mechanisms that require a lot of uh, rigorous testing to understand what they actually do to the aircraft. Um, the, the saying is that in every five degrees of this tilt, it's an actually, actually an aircraft, a different aircraft and you need to prove a lot of things are safe while doing so in transition of those uh, geometry changing machines. Obviously, like in every other aircraft, this is a um, this is always a compromise. So there are other issues. For example, those large rotors, um, the lift rotors, when you push them forward, um, they vibrate, and you need to mitigate that vibration. And there's a lot of uh, fine tuning and, and clever engineering involved in that. Um, but again, assuming you did your job right, and the engineers work hard as they did, and we did, and they did. Um, well, I think what we can show is that much like, you know, today the only company that flew anywhere near this is Joby, uh, that yeah. flew the previous record roughly uh, a mile shorter, so very similar. And yeah. I think that's, <clears throat> and I think that's, and I think that's really the heart of what was achieved uh, with our record-breaking uh, flight. It's that if you build it right, and if you use the state-of-the-art technology, you can reach these kinds of ranges. So looking back at what we discussed before, what kind of mission are we hoping for? That's easy. We're easily going to fly a couple of you know tens of miles. We flew 155 miles. That's, that's a lot. You don't want to be an hour and a half in such a small cabin. You yeah. probably want to be able to fly this with a lot of reserves, so you know that you're fine even if there is a charging issue in the first landing spot you have. Uh, you probably want to you wanna probably fly this um, with maybe a several hops, so you don't really have to. You can pick someone up and continue to your final destination. It gives operational flexibility. And obviously, if you want to fly 150 miles, you can do it. So I think that's that's what we're seeing. And I think what it really says is that these planes, from an operational perspective, and from a performance perspective, 
are ready for prime time with existing technology. We don't need some breakthrough in battery technology, motor technology. We're fine. Mm-hmm. We just have a lot of work to do in proving that these are rigorously built safely for prime time and for social acceptance. Mm-hmm. And that's really the heart of the next move. Who is your primary market for this? Are you expecting um, operators to emerge, like, let's say, taxi companies or private individuals, companies? What's, what's the primary market that you're expecting? And do you have any estimate of the cost of operation and, the, uh, let's say, the, the retail cost of this? How much is going to cost to get one? So th- these are two questions for which I have, um, I would say, some answers, but uh, but a lot of it is yet to be seen. Um, a lot of the players out there today are trying to be both the OEM for the aircraft and the operator, mostly because it is so difficult to prove a future market in an area that does not yet exist. And it, this is not a replacement for helicopter service in the city. This is potentially an extension of, of the taxi that takes you to the to the airport or something like that. And it's very hard to do the math. So for existing airlines, this is a little beyond the way they usually buy planes. And I think we're going to see a mix of, of operators emerge. Some of them are going to be either the airlines themselves or very, very strongly affiliated with the airlines. And some of them are going to be um, either completely new players or players who are today um, more intertwined with uh, with ground transportation that want to go in that direction. Uh, we do not intend to be an operator. Autoflight is an OEM. We sell our planes. And we do have uh, a few surprises um, up our sleeve that will be uh, unveiled in the next couple of months and showing some deals that are happening. That said, in terms of price to operate and price for the aircraft itself. So we believe the target price for these things need to be just north of a million dollars at the end. And I think we can reach it anywhere between one and 1.5 million dollars per plane is doable with a very, very simple configuration as we've presented and with a very well-built <clears throat> supply chain that's both vertically integrated into the organization, but also leans very heavily on existing manufacturing capacity in the auto industry or elsewhere where you're not vertically integrated. In terms of direct operating costs, the target here needs to be that in reasonable operating distances, meaning anywhere between you know, two, three to several dozens of <clears throat> of miles, I would say up to 50 miles, this needs to cost more or less in the order of magnitude of an expensive taxi. So the fancier taxi service, this cannot cost five, six times more than that. And if you do the math per seat, that means that your direct operating cost per flight hour need to be very low, need to be in, in the order of magnitude of $25 to $50 in direct operating, not including piloting and um, I would say insurance and some other um, costs that are there. Obviously, it differs from one market to the other. But again, looking at the simplicity of what we've built and at the maintenance requirements that it entails and the energy requirements that are involved with it, we believe that we will be able to offer um, a price structure that allows operators 
to really take you from Manhattan to to JFK at the cost of you know Uber Black. Uh, obviously, okay. the same same applies for LAX and uh, and anywhere in the Los Angeles um, greater metropolitan area or anywhere else in the states. And the same goes for Europe. Now to do so, and that's really the heart of the difference between Autoflight and some other players that today. We can probably be the first one to do it out of the gate. We don't need to scale to tens of thousands of these planes in the sky to really get to those price points. And that has to do with the simplicity of the design and the vertical integration and Im- embedded supply chain that we have today. And in terms of time frame, uh, where are you now? What's the timeline ahead? Do you have any expectation to get certified between a specific time frame and then to launch commercially? So that's obviously the multi-billion dollar question for everybody. I think putting a date on it is always difficult and there will be significant surprises in the two, three years to come. We have uh, created a very robust design that I believe is very close, but it's not quite the conforming prototype coming out of a conforming production line. And that's something that people need to understand. There is a process that does not only require to prove that the plane is safe, but also that the next plane is going to be exactly the same. So you're actually certifying both the product and its manufacturing uh, process. Because you have, get... you have one, one prototype now. You've built so one. So today we're, we're actually flying quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of planes already. Uh, we have four, mm. I would say three really close to, to conformity uh, prototypes. And we can fairly easily build more and we are building uh, coming constantly closer and closer to that point where we can say, okay, this is the conforming prototype from now on, nothing in the aircraft or the process changes, um, which is really a a significant milestone for us internally. I believe we will reach that milestone early next year. And from that point, you're probably looking at around 18 to 24 months of YASA certification. So we're looking at 2025, mid to end of 2025 as a reasonable timeframe for YASA certification. Can it or is it likely to slip by a year or two? I don't know. I presume based on my experience with the aviation programs and with the, um, let's say, early stage of that regulation, that the regulator will have things to say that will be significant and we will need to take them into account. Once that something is not completely in your hands, if there is one thing I learned from aviation, it's not just expecting the surprises, is just understanding that in many cases, it's not just you developing, the regulator is also developing the regulation and some things will change. Um, I believe that looking at the bigger picture, having commercial operation of Prosperity One in both Europe and the US and China with different regulatory bodies approving their own um, ops is likely to be global by 2027-ish. Uh, Mm -hmm. assuming we go to maybe China cargo first, um, just because it seems like it's a more um, straightforward mission um, or more or less neck and neck between China cargo and YASA certification for uh, passengers and then probably a a verification type certificate. So uh, a type certificate that is done by reference to what we did with YASA with the FAA um no later than a year after that so again if the target the ambitious goal is 2025 i would say that between 2025 and 2027 you're probably going to see all of these come into place and and that's really what we're working towards 
with both the flight test campaign and the setup of the production and quality systems that are needed. On your website, you mentioned that you are applying a whole set of novel technologies to the design of these aircraft. In particular, you mentioned things like artificial intelligence, I think um, automation. Is autonomous flight in the cards at some point in the future? I believe so. And again, this looks a bit further into the future because I think we're going to see two or three stages of these um, products going into market. First of all, this plane is built to be flown by a pilot in today's regulatory environment with pilots that will have training to carry people. So they've had a lot of flight training and a lot of experience with both helicopters and fixed wing and really comply with everything that you would expect to see. Now, the thing is that once you start acting and working, the next step is to see how you scale. Um, and the scale really comes when you have more autonomy. We cannot expect to see hundreds or, or even thousands of these planes over cities um, without some level of automation of the safety and air traffic over that city. And that automation happens in two very different avenues. You need to make the airplane itself more autonomous. It will make more economic sense. It's uh, in, in theory, it's even safer. We just need to build it that way, like to build the whole system that way. But it also requires significant steps in, in social acceptance. Are we quite ready for people to climb on board and see no one there and treat this like an elevator? Um, I think this will take time, significant time. Regulatory technology and, uh, and social acceptance-wise, I think we're looking at, at five to 10 years into the future after the start of operations. The other side that needs to be automated is air traffic control, which in theory is a bit easier because you don't really have the social acceptance piece of it. It's already happening in very big airports. There is a lot of automation around the uh, queue of, of uh, landing, but still there is a very, very complex system in place that relies very heavily on humans judging and making decisions and creating a system that transforms this while keeps some level of compatibility to the systems out there today and to the people flying out today is very complex. So I think these things will happen further down the road, but it's our job as an OEM in the making to make sure that we're both ready for it and then sometimes even lead the charge for making this uh, a reality. What about um, industrial capacity? How many units are you expecting to build, uh, provided that all the certification and design um, and testing stages uh, go as expected. So this is, again, one of the unique selling propositions of, uh, of AutoFlight. We already have a very significant uh, capacity to manufacture. Uh, this is why we build multiple prototypes. This is why we test and certify our own manufacturing processes. Um, we already can build dozens of planes per year today. I believe by the end of this year, we'll be able to build hundreds of planes per year. And that's really the target as we go to market. Uh, growing that to thousands will require some uh, further investment and honestly is probably best done once you have that traction from the market and market product fit really nailed down, which I expect will happen in any case uh, in the first few years of operation. The way you transition from hundreds to thousands, though, again, is deeply rooted in how you build your supply chain. And some of it is already in place already. So 
I feel that we're very well positioned there. Um, I feel that going to market with uh, the capacity to build hundreds of planes is significant. We've seen some of the deals that were announced out there talk about numbers that are unheard of for the for the aviation industry. Uh, you know, an airline saying, "Oh, we'll buy a thousand of those if something goes right," um, is is interesting. And how do you build a thousand planes? Uh, how do you build a thousand planes as a startup? And and the answer is well. You start early. <laughs> so we've started early. <laughs> yeah. So for people that wish to learn more about out of flight, uh, maybe uh, see some images, videos of, for example, these testing flights you've, you've been conducting, which websites, online resources would you recommend? So first of all, autoflight.com does have uh, significant resources and links that you can, uh, that you can look at. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel that, uh, that shows some of those um, test flights, and some of them actually have full length, so you can see the entire flight accelerated or not. It's a bit boring, but if you're up for it, go for it. Um, another uh, fun way to engage, I believe, is just to uh, wait and see and come to the Paris Air Show. So some shows coming up uh, throughout the year, and specifically Paris. It's been a while since Paris uh, was out with uh, with at full swing uh, with COVID and all. So super excited to go to Paris again and, and hope to see a lot of people from the industry poking around there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. I'm possibly going as well. Uh, and I wanted to ask you whether you, we are going to see your prototype flying there. So flying at the Paris Air Show is extremely difficult. And I believe uh, this will not happen. But at the very least, um, there'll be some surprises. So stay okay. tuned. Okay. Well, in any case, uh, hope to see you there. So wishing you all the best with this project and see you soon then. Thanks, Mikhail. It's great to talk to you again and hope to see you soon in, in Paris and after. Thank you very much. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're using or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much and see you soon.